Welcome back to Newswire. It is half four. On January 20th, Derek Hutch Coakley was shot in Bridgeview, Clondalkin, marking the 14th death connected with the Hutch Keenan feud. Since its beginning in 2015, the media has sensationalised the feud but often overlooks its lasting impact on the people and the areas affected. TD Maureen O'Sullivan is one such person that has spoken out about this and we are delighted to have her on the line. Thank you so much for joining us, Maureen. You're welcome. Good afternoon. So just to start us off, do you feel that the media has sensationalised this so-called feud? Um, yes, and I mean, I, I do think the media are, you know, their interest is in selling papers and we mm-hmm. know that um, the, the headlines and the negativity and the, the, the gory details are mm. what can sell papers. And, and it's very difficult sometimes to get across in the media uh, what exactly is happening and how it came to this particular point that we're at now. Yeah. So um, last week I was on Leeds' Questions with the, the Taunister, Simon Coveney, and I had the opportunity to say that to him that you know this didn't happen overnight mm-hmm. and somebody had made the point to me well if this were happening out in the leafy suburbs or dublin four it just there'd be a different response and i was making the point that that's to miss the point that it's yeah. not happening out there and it wouldn't happen out there and if you look at the difference between those leafy suburbs and the north inner city and you look at mm-hmm. the, the difference in terms of housing and infrastructure in terms of progression in education in terms of jobs and disposable income in terms of the the opportunities for social activities and the other question i i put to him is that you know where this where in those leafy suburbs is there mm-hmm. open drug dealing that we mm-hmm. see in the north inner city um, so it's not just his government but it's quite a number of governments who have allowed the deprivation and the neglect and it's out of that neglect that that becomes a really fertile ground for drugs and for the whole industry that's around that and then the, the, the devastation that causes. As you've just said there, like it took these murders to highlight the issues of gangland and drug crime in the north inner city. How can these issues be addressed and why have they been left until now? Well, I think that they have been le- they've been left neglected for a whole pile of reasons over the years, and it does start. It starts back a long time ago when the docklands became containerized, mechanized. Mm-hmm. <coughs> excuse me, and the docklands had been a traditional source of employment for a lot of young people from the, the, the inner city areas. Um, you know, you add to that the way in which the whole um, apprenticeship. Uh, went as well because that would have been another yeah. traditional area for young people to go into apprenticeships, apprenticeships and that went. Um, so you've different things kind of eating away at the communities um, and then we saw the drugs came in and the way in which that you know that was allowed to kind of to fester for quite a long time so it took hold on the on the north inner city. Now what has happened is you know there's been great work going on by the community organisations, the youth organisations, those who are involved in the addiction services. But in the past 10 years, they've had to deal with incredible cuts to their funding. Um, And that has not been, they haven't been replaced, Mm -hmm. but yet they're getting more and more work. So there's a whole pile of things going on. Now, and you know, very unfortunately, it took those murders to bring attention. And out of all of that, there's now um, a coalition working together, and there is a committee that came out of the Kieran Mulvey report mm-hmm. uh, under the chairmanship of Michael Stone. And we know it's not going to change overnight, but we do need to see more, I suppose, more uh, updates on the implementation of what's needed to address mm-hmm. the issues. Yeah, of course. 
how can the cycle of crime for young people in these communities be broken? You've spoken about how community workers have put the effort in, mm-hmm. but like, how will the police force and the government combat and tackle this? Will they actually address it now with the work um, that's well, been done? There, there, were, there were quite, quite a number of issues in the Mulvey mm. report, um, and the, 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 the coalition of community and youth organisations also came together with their report mm. and their recommendations. And I do think the two together... Um, is the way forward. For me as a former teacher, the best way with young people is yes. keep them in, edu- in mm-hmm. education and that they see that there is a future through education because it's too, you know, it, you can't blame these these young guys. The amount of money that Absolutely. they can make out of selling tablets and um, that that's going to give them the lifestyle that they see other people having. So we, we have to break that that, that, that idea of crime paying mm-hmm. um, and that it's much much progressive and much more positive for them to stay in school and to, to progress through education um, and then just now speaking at the vigil of Derek Coakley Hutch, Father Michael Casey spoke of a cloud of fear that's come across the area, how have these killings impacted the people in the area? Right, I think um, first of all there's obviously the fear element Yeah. Um, and even though the guard, the, the armed response unit has been there they, they, you know, can't prevent a murder taking place. Mm-hmm. But I, I would acknowledge the work that the Gardaí have doing, the intelligence that they've gathered, and they are hitting some of these people in their pockets. Yeah. But there's no doubt the fear that's there. And, I, you know, I think particularly of older people, senior citizens. And they're the women particularly yeah. who have come through so many other difficulties in their lives living in the north inner city. And they're absolutely amazing women. Mm-hmm. But they're little social lives are being affected you know the clubs that they used to go to maybe with their their friends um, the services that are there for them maybe even going to the local pub the fear of coming out because they don't know what they're going to come out to and then the other one is for the young people um, and children um, that this horrible atmosphere of kind of normalising an armed response unit on your street and this thing that oh well another killing another murder another attempt on somebody's life that's wrong Um, again of Derek Hutch's vigil, it was reported that 500 people were in attendance. What does that say to you as a TD in the constituency about the area? As for myself, it would talk about the sense of community in the area. Yes, yeah, I know it was. It, it's, um, you know, regardless of what a murder victim has been doing, he is somebody's son or brother or father or cousin or whatever. And the community communities in the north inner city they're so resilient and they're so supportive of mm-hmm. each other that has yeah. always been the tradition Absolutely. always you know going back to the, the flat complexes and the way the women looked out for their own children for other people's children that whole community sense and that's what comes out at those times of great difficulty and that's all we have time for thank you so much for joining us maureen Yesterday marked the beginning of Sexual Health Awareness and Guidance Week, otherwise known as Shag Week, taking place on college campuses across the country. The Union of Students in Ireland has joined forces with the HSE to to promote sexual health and provide guidance to students. This comes after figures reported that 2017 saw an 11% increase in sexually transmitted infections among young people compared to 2016. To discuss the campaign in more detail, I'm joined on the line by the head of the HSE's Sexual Health and Crisis Pregnancy Programme, Helen Dealey. Welcome to Newswire, Helen. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. 
Firstly, Helen, Shag Week is an annual event in many Irish colleges. Um, but can you give us a bit more detail about what exactly it entails? So, so the HSE has recently partnered with USI um, on Shag Week, uh, and it's really to promote our Johnny's Got You Covered campaign and to get our team on board to distribute condoms and lubes as part of prevention around STIs and unplanned pregnancy. The main message for this campaign is, are you getting it? So what USI are asking is, are you getting STI information? Are you getting testing? Are you getting contraception advice? And are you getting consent? Right. So in the age of smartphones, where we have access to, I suppose, endless information at our fingertips, do you think campaigns like Shag Week are necessary? Do, do we need this sort of awareness and education? Yes. So what we know is that um, the Johnny's Got You Covered campaign uh, has been very effective. Um, A recent evaluation of this campaign at the end of 2017 told us that 9 out of 10 young people are aware that they should use a condom to prevent STIs and that 9 out of 10 say that they carry a condom if they're planning to have sex. So these are the type of healthy behaviours and messages that we're trying to encourage mm-hmm. among, among young people. And we also know from previous research that 80% of 18 to 24 year olds use contraception every time they have sex. So key messages for our campaigns are prevention, promoting correct and consistent use of condoms and contraception to prevent sexually transmitted infections and unplanned pregnancies. Okay, Uh, and sexuality, I suppose, is something that is a lot more out in the open these days and it's not really the taboo that it once was. Do you think that's having a positive impact on people's attitudes to sex or would you say that this kind of more sexualised world that we live in is only really feeding distorted and unhealthy sort of approaches to sex and sexuality? that like from as young as possible and as early as possible to encourage um, to encourage young people to talk about relationships, to talk about sexuality, to develop open, trusting and honest relationships with them so that they're able to talk about their sexuality, they're able to talk about their behaviour, they're able to seek advice and able to seek support. So, and what we do know is that like, there's greater awareness among young people in terms of testing um, and there's greater awareness uh, in terms of being responsible around sex. So young people now are much more responsible around sex and their sexual behaviour and they're taking right. responsibility for being sexually active. Okay. Um, it was reported yesterday that an 11% increase in STIs among young people in 2017 compared to the year before um, with at least 5,200 people aged between 15 and 24 diagnosed with chlamydia, gonorrhea and genital herpes. What was your reaction to these figures? Were you surprised? So, um, uh, it's, it's, it, it depends on, on, on how you look at it. So, mm-hmm. so if, if we look at the increase, like the biggest increases in gonorrhea at 20%, chlamydia at just over 10%, and then genital herpes, a slightly uh, lower increase at just over 2.5%. I mean, the reasons for this increase uh, are, are, are multifactorial. And what we're saying is that greater awareness among young people means that young people are getting tested more frequently. Mm-hmm. So that's a good thing. If you've had unprotected sex, then you should get tested. We also know from the um, genital herpes that the increase here in the majority of cases type 1 herpes, which could be, uh, which, which suggests the oral vaginal sex, 
So this is down to behaviour. And we also know that the more partners you have, the greater your chances of coming in contact with an infected person. And the Healthy Ireland survey from 2017 tells us 38% of 17 to 24 year olds reported having multiple partners. So again, you know, the, the, the key messages are here, you know, to limit your partners, wear a condom, if you've had unprotected sex, uh, get an STI screening and, and just be more responsible about your sexual behaviour. Okay, so what sort of facilities and resources are available for students who are listening um, who might be concerned themselves or just interested in keeping sexually healthy? You know, STI clinics and and the likes, yeah. Okay, so the key messages uh, for us um, are, um, first of all, use a condom every time you have sex. Condom offers the best protection for STIs. Secondly, if you get get regularly tested if you're sexually active. A list of STI services are available on the HSE website, that's hse.ie, or you can equally visit our Think Contraception website. Specific information for men is on mantoman.ie, and uh, DCU Health Service also offer STI screening. I suppose the third key message is that you should reduce the number of partners and overlapping partners. The more partners you have, the greater your chances of coming in contact with an infected person. I'm joined with Eamon McGuire, the former VP for Engagement and Development for 2016-17. Uh, so Emer, since your departure from the SU as VP for Engagement and Development, do you think the DCU incorporation with St. Pat's Matter Day has been a success? Um, yeah, I believe so. Uh, obviously, no matter what happened, there, there was obviously going to be um, little things that needed to be adjusted and nothing is ever going to run smoothly from the get-go. You're putting together um, a lot of very big institutions that mean a lot to and have a lot of history behind them. So I suppose there was always going to be um, a breaking in period that was going to have a little bit of problems. But I think overall, um, so far, it seems to be going really well. And as a previous St. Pat's student yourself, you spent three years on the St. Pat's campus before the incorporation. How did it compare to the new DCU that you were engagement and development officer of last year? In regards to the Students' Union, um, everything was on a bigger scale. Obviously, you have much more students, you have a much more uh, diverse student body, and um, everybody's studying different things, whereas when you're in St. Pat's, a lot of people are all geared towards teaching. Um, so in that regard, events were different, um, talks were different, even issues that students came to you with were different, but um, overall, I think it's probably for the best like um, students are going to benefit from this a lot more there's more things for students to do now even with the new student centre hub that'll be opened in the coming weeks um, I think the students of St Pat's Matter Day and CIC will all benefit from it in the long term and did you notice a divide between the students on the St Pat's campus and the Glasdevon campus a lot of St Pat's students particularly older students are having trouble adapting their identity and accepting that they are now DCU students so why would you, do you think this is such an issue? Um, yes, definitely. There is most definitely a divide. I think um, students were kind of just, they were neglected when it came to university-wide planning. Um, there was obviously events like DC Fuse and stuff that they got to have their say in, but I don't think students were really aware of what was going on because it had been in planning for so long and it had kind of been kept hush-hush. Um, in regards to the older students being finding it difficult to find their identity that's more so I imagine because teachers run in families and there's a history behind St. Pat's and Matter Day and CIC um, 
it would have been their parents or their grandparents or aunts and uncles probably went to this college and they're probably expecting to have something very different to what they were thrown into. Um, St. Pat's, in my opinion, is it's a community and they have a certain way of going about things. And I suppose nobody likes change, so that's probably why they found it so difficult because they had been so used to having things a certain way. And then when you're thrown into a situation that everything is up in the air and you don't know what's going on, even simple things like how to register, it all changed for them. So I suppose in that regard, they were kind of just thrown in the deep end and they didn't really know what to expect. So I'd say that's more so why they're finding it difficult. Um, they didn't really have a say, I imagine. And as an officer in the SU in the main year of the new DCU, how involved were you in the actual incorporation pro- pro- process and did you encounter any difficulties with the incorporation? Um, yeah, we technically, obviously, the Students' Union didn't really have much of a say. Uh, Dylan, the president, he would have had more of a say than any of us um, in regards to incorporation. But things that students noticed, like signage going up and um, issues like that, we had absolutely no say on that. So I suppose even if they... The university maybe would have, you know, dealt with us through those things, saying what time should we put them up. There was a big issue with signage going up when students were around and witnessing it, and a St. Pat's sign that had been there for years and years had come down in front of students. I think um, things like that, they were neglected. Um, but in regards to the incorporation and issues, I suppose, even simple things like registry, again, there was a lot of issues with that. Um, and then... Probably events was probably where we were more more so um, involved, and luckily enough, we had Why Not Networks that are great. They cater for a lot of the students down on St. Pat's campus and um, All Hallows campus, so I suppose we were very lucky in that regard to have them on our side. Okay, and um, what was your biggest challenge as Vice President in relation to the incorporation? Oh, um, <laughs> biggest issue was probably trying to cater to everybody's needs. Um, because engagement is such a big thing and it covers such a wide, um, broad area. So you obviously wanted students to get involved, but if people were annoyed at the university or annoyed at the students' union, obviously they're not going to get involved. So you have to try and cater for everybody's needs. St. Pat's campus, like I said, is is a very like one-way system. They're all geared towards teaching, whereas DCU is um, much more diverse and has a lot more um, students doing different things. So even in regards to events, you need to be very strategic with what you place and which campus, and you have to be respectful more so than anything of the students that are that have been put in this situation that really are still trying to find their feet. Okay, and from your own position, did you notice any benefits from working with St. Pat's students? Um, working with St. Pat's students, I suppose, like they're the they're the kindest people you'll ever come across, and they're very organised and very. Like they know what they want, so they'll just tell you. They'll openly tell you. So that was one good thing that we we dealt with sympath students. Um, they're a great bunch of people. I suppose I'm one of them. Um, but no sympath students, and um, they never want to cause hassle. They just um, they just want to get the job done. So I suppose that was one great thing to have them on side. Okay, and people often forget that same paths That sorry. People often forget that along with St. Pat's, DCU also amalgamated with Matter Day and the Church of Ireland College of Education last year. How did you find engaging with those campuses and students? Um, the Matter Day and CIC students are lovely. They like to kind of keep to themselves a lot, actually. So 
I think once they actually got settled into All Hallows campus, um, well, they're kind of between St. Pat's and All Hallows, but mainly on All Hallows campus, I think they were actually quite happy to be kind of keep to themselves. Um, that was the consensus from speaking to a lot of them. But I don't know in regards to the university if it was dealt with as well as the, obviously there's more of a population in St. Pat's um, college there was. So I think a lot of emphasis was put on St. Pat's, but they were kind of neglected in, even in terms of they had a big issue with getting books from their library and getting them moved up to um, the Pat's library and even things like that. It, it kind of influenced their actual grades and actually their education. Um, a lot of them had issues with getting books for assignments and then assignments were overdue. So I suppose that's one big issue. But they seemed happy enough, and I think overall they're probably they're probably in a good place now in All Hallows, and things have kind of, as time has gone on, I'm sure things will adjust and all those little bumps will be will be fixed. Okay, and from your own experience, have you any words of advice for the incoming SU on how to best engage with the new DCU? Um, I suppose just try your best and keep calm. <laughs> Um, not everyone is always going to be happy so I think you need to just try and engage as many people as you can and reach out to as many people as you can and let them know that you're there whether they want you there or not Um, because at some point everyone's going to need some bit of help whether it's educational or it's their own personal life or whatever it is Um, I think probably my one bit of advice is to just try and be out there and let people know that you're there but um also keep calm yeah because it can be stressful but enjoy every single second of it because it's probably the best experience you'll ever have okay perfect thank you very much Emer. thanks so much for that interview thank you again no problem. London Irish Abortion Rights Campaign has today launched the Home to Vote website to inform Irish expats of their rights and to encourage them to have their say in the referendum this May. According to Irish law, Irish citizens lose their right to vote in Ireland 18 months after moving abroad. As there is no postal vote available, voters will have to travel back to Ireland to cast their ballot and have their say. I'm joined on the line by Sarah Murphy, a representative from the London Irish Abortion Rights Campaign, to discuss the new Home to Vote initiative. Thanks for speaking to us, Sarah. So Irish women travel to England for abortions every year, but you're asking them to make the journey in reverse. Yeah, I think it's quite a symbolic mobilisation and show support and engagement. Um, we, we don't have any accurate figures about events from 2017, but we're guesstimating that there are up to 40,000 people entitled to vote um, in the upcoming referendum. And an awful lot of these are women in their 20s, um, who might have, you know, been in those in those shoes before, they might have had those experiences and overwhelmingly are engaged in this massive issue. So we think that um, you know, we should be mobilizing um this large part of the Irish diaspora. Mm-hmm. Um and we saw from the marriage referendum yeah. where we also, you know, had a huge campaign there for immigrants going home to vote, that not only did is show how many people were engaged outside the island but also i think it encouraged huge mobilization at home as well right you said yourself there that lots of irish people returned home from abroad in 2015 to vote in the marriage equality referendum so you foresee the same thing happening this coming may well that's what we're hopeful for i mean yeah. it's, uh, we're waiting on the date for the referendum 
Um, but we've already seen in the last 24 hours that there's huge appetite and encouragement. Okay. Um, and there's an awful lot of people actually who've forgotten that they're still entitled, um, that you know, mm-hmm. they have, they've left within the last 18 months, reminding people to check um, the register, check their entitlements. So if you go to hometovote.com, you'll okay. see that there's a section for if you're a resident in Ireland or if you live abroad and guidance on how you can check and how you can engage in, uh, in the campaign. Because lots of people could actually be registered and don't know, so you can check via the website. You can you can check on guidance from the website, and there's okay. also um, the government's website. Check the register, literally. Yeah. Check the check the register. You <laughs> never know, and if yeah. you're not, get yourself registered if you're entitled to it. Okay, so both sides of this debate have a very strong backing, so it means this referendum could be extremely tight. Do you think Irish people coming home from abroad could actually sway this referendum? abortion rights campaign, you're organising groups to travel back to Ireland, is that correct, and fundraising those who can't afford to travel themselves? Yeah, exactly, exactly. So we're mobilising fundraising campaigns as well as information, um, which is a huge part of it, is, you know, people might want to do things but they don't know how they should approach it or how to check. So we're planning to, to help mobilise and organise um, trips and, uh, uh, and invite people on going back and mm-hmm. um, limited to London Irish or can other Irish people abroad get in touch with you uh, about going home? rights group, does that mean you're only encouraging pro-choice voters to come home or will you be supporting those pro-life people abroad as well?
our agenda is to repeal the Eighth Amendment and to open up um, access to reproductive health care for women of Ireland, and that's going to continue to be our message right. until the referendum and ever after. Are you aware of any such campaign on the pro-life side to bring people yeah, home? Yeah, I mean, we're certainly aware of them. Um, we engage them, we've had conversations with them. Um, I was speaking to, to one of them last week, um, and there are a lot of, you know, um, anti-choice activists over here, just like there are at home. Right, okay. I think what we're very conscious of is that the anti-choice uh, campaign in Ireland is being heavily funded um, and reinforced by anti-abortion activists from the US as well, a lot of whom are travelling over, um, a lot of money is flowing into it, um, so we need to be really aware of what that campaign is doing and making sure that we're continuing mm-hmm. our message of the positivity for independent choice for women. Can you tell us a bit about the work of the London Irish ARC on an ordinary basis? Yeah, so it's, it's actually it's really, really busy all the time. And as I said, we cover, um, we also cover the rights of women in Northern Ireland as well. So we have dedicated lobbying groups and campaign groups. We work really closely with some key MPs. You might have seen an MP called Jess Phillips, um, who on television interviews and in Westminster has been seen to wear the repeal necklace. Um, we work with Stella Creasy, who's an MP over Walthamstow in East London, um, and worked quite hard with her to get access for Northern Irish women to um, access NHS-funded abortions in England, where previously they had to pay for it. Um, so we work a lot in lobbying um, to influence the change uh, for, for Northern Irish women as well, who at the moment cannot access abortion services. So nice. the 1967 Act in the UK is only covers Great Britain, so England, Scotland and Wales. We work a lot with other Irish expatriate groups um, on information, on sharing stories, mobilising funds of support. So we also um, we also work with the Abortion Support Network who tries to support women in Ireland to access abortions when they don't have any money. Um, and it can be paying for an airfare or it can be paying for the medical services. So they do at you know, amazing work, um, and we would work closely with them as well. We do direct action, take part in the Patrick's Day parades and the March for Women. And um, so 